necessarily. I mean, the show runs from the 2nd to the 26th of May. G'day, everybody. Welcome to Wombat Radio. Today, on Skype from Berlin to Melbourne, we're speaking with Kevin Chin. G'day, Kev. Hey, Matt. Well, what's happened in 15 years? Gee, you know, making art, living the dream. So I'm still in Melbourne. Uh, I know you're always on some fandangled mission on some other side of the world, but uh, no, I'm still here, sticking around. I moved, did move to London for a year, and I also moved to Japan for a year, and done a lot of um, studio residencies in between. But um, at the moment now, I'm now showing in Melbourne with a gallery called This Is No Fantasy um, in Fitzroy, and I've been with them for the last five years. And I'm also just recently signed on to this very fancy uh, gallery in Sydney uh, called Mark Brown Contemporary, and they're in Paddington, and they're very swish. So I'm very excited about that new relationship. So I'm having my first show with them uh, opening on the 2nd of May. So I'm hoping that goes well. Um, So let's back up a bit, and you can tell us who you are. Um, Okay, so who I am... Hmm. So I guess uh, I'm a painter, so I know that you focus usually on dance performers for your podcast, so I feel very honoured to be one of the few visual artists that's been included, so thank you for having me. Um, I'm a painter, I... Uh, I make paintings that are about um, ideas around nationalism and structural inequalities. So um, that's largely based on my migrant experience. So my family moved to Melbourne when I was two years old. I was born in Malaysia and have Chinese ancestry. So that informs a lot of the development process of the paintings. So does that mean that you feel Aussie? Oh, yeah, I'm completely Australian. I, it's funny. I, um, yeah, I don't speak any other languages. Uh, so, and because I've been in Melbourne since I was two years old, even though I've tried to move to like, London and Japan and try to leave other things, I'm like, I always miss Melbourne. <laughs> can't live anywhere else. Can't. Even was, I was reconsidering, we were considering moving to Sydney at some point last year, but I'm like, uh, everyone I know is in Melbourne. I'm definitely a Melbourneite, tr- through and through. You're making paintings predominantly. What is the point before the the brush hits it, and then what is the point after the, the it dries? Okay, so basically, I am painting full time. So I um, am basically painting from. 8.30 in the morning till 6.30 in the evening, uh, Monday to Friday at the moment. Um, if you're asking about the creative development process, um, so the paintings are based on collages that I make. So um, the starting point is actually photography. So I take a lot of um, source imagery um, from mostly travels, a lot of studio residencies from different parts of the world. So the paintings that are in this show coming up have got uh, imagery from America, Japan, Indonesia, um, from uh, studio residencies that I've done before. 
Um, so they're spliced together through a collage process and that forms the basis of the paintings. So you like take the photos and then you cut the photos up and then you arrange them and then you repaint that? Yes. So the paintings, the, the, the goal with the paintings, they're basically of new territories that are beyond nationalistic borderlines. Um, so they are spliced together images from yeah, different parts of the world to think about how place is conceived in the consciousness, how, um, how where you feel yourself uh, belonging is beyond anything that's rooted in any kind mm. of fixed geography. Yeah, I've been working on something similar in dance, which is like, mm. well, it kind of came full circle, but my initial idea was that in the past there was a geographical fixed spot where a dance was done and belonged to. Mm -hmm. And that since, I mean, since a lot of dance forms, but uh, breakdance and Vogue and Crump and that these, these almost globalized through industry and YouTube dance genres and forms and cultures and communities that mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a, like a cosmopolitan folk dance. It's everybody in the world who's connected to the internet. This is how they dance now. So they're, uh, a community, a non-geographically specific cultural dance. Right. I think it's something that's really um, current at the moment. I think um, not only am I interested in those themes as well through the subject matter, but like you're talking about, it's through the form as well. So just the fact that I exist as someone who, um, you know, has trained in the European tradition in Australia, but really grew up around imagery of sort of more Chinese kind of watercolour type paintings, you know, um, and yet have travelled to America and Japan and, you know, seen all different other kinds of forms of paintings. I think all of that kind of um, informs the painting technique and the painting form. I remember in um, I went back and did an honours year in, in 2012 and my honours supervisor said to me, my gosh, like this one painting looks like it's been painted by six different people because <laughs> it just yeah, uh, I was like, mm, I think that's a compliment. Uh, he was like, yeah, you should take that as a compliment. Um, but, yeah, because I guess uh, I'm so experimental in the way that um, painting can be applied because of all these different cultural influences that I think that's what um, signifies uh, the relevance of the kind of painting that I do. And when we think about, like, multi or maybe a better word is many cultured imagery. Mm -hmm. How do you think about what is shared amongst those cultures and contexts? Yeah, well, at the moment, um, in terms of what's being shared, so the new series um, that's being shown at Martin Brown in Sydney that's um, coming up, that's opening on the 2nd of May, um, the show is takes a, it's called structural equality and it takes as a starting point an interest I've had in structural inequalities um, from a lot of the media that I've been listening to in the past year and a half while these paintings have been developed. 
So in terms of sharing, um, I think we've seen a lot in the past year and a half with regards to uh, a, a wider um, consciousness around diversity, like the raising the prominence of the Me Too movement and gay marriage being granted in Australia and, you know, a number of things, like not just with regards to, you know, cultural, like uh, ethnic and cultural and race relations, but broader speaking um, in ways that I think everyone, well, most people can relate to. Um, and thinking about it in terms of those power structures and who has access to opportunities and who might not. Yeah. And do you feel like your access to opportunities is different having moved to Australia? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, actually, one of the recurring themes in, in the paintings is this relationship between the developed and the developing world. Um, the last series that I did, yeah, totally. Um, you know, it's funny, like this idea that, like, um, yeah, when I visit, um, so I went back. I went to, um, even though I'm from Malaysia, I went back to Southeast Asia. I went to Indonesia a couple of years ago, and you always have this sense that, like, this is something about the smell of the place that seems really familiar. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's a good smell. <laughs> Uh, kind of a mix of open sewerage and other nasty things, but you, you just kind of it's kind of, and the humidity, it's like about the smell of the humidity or something, and it kind of seems really familiar. It's like kind of really prime audio, like uh, harks back to a I don't know an infant memory or something. Because you know I left I left when I was like two years old, so it's kind of weird that I can still kind of have this re relationship with this sense of smell to the place. But um, yeah, I always think like oh. You know, is this where I'm from? Like, am I going to have this kind of like amazing like connection to the land, this area and stuff? And usually I'm more like, oh my gosh, open squat toilet, get me out of here, get me back to Australia. Like, so it's definitely a mixed up relationship between this, you know, idea of where you think you should belong, where you feel like you could belong. Like, I mean, in you know, some parallel dimension, my family never moved to Australia and I am one of these figures in these paintings that's on the back of a truck loading boxes in the heat with, you know, not a hell of a lot of future prospects. So, um, yeah, it's kind of this weird... I think that's part of the reason why I use the very mixed-up imagery that I do is that on some levels I connect to all of the different scenarios that are pictured and I think that's also what gives me a bit of license because I think there's real issues with, um, you know, real power issues with someone from a developed country taking imagery from a developing country and then um, kind of showing it and, well, selling it really in a commercial gallery. So um, but I think with the biography that I have and the relationship I have with these places, I think maybe gives me a little bit more license to uh, uh, play around with that kind of imagery than maybe some others might have. Yeah, for sure. I guess there's things in the paintings whereby each 
thing is suddenly having a relationship with objects that it never would, and and even including people in those objects, like yes. um, beach umbrellas beside a snowy creek, and and yeah. some people are in jackets and some people are in singlets, and then there's like other places that are picturesque and beautiful with developed ar- architecture, but with rubbish. Um, yeah. And I I also have questions about that's something that's maybe large, thinking about nationalism and then thinking about um, dissolving the definition between one nation and another by putting what has come to represent them aesthetically mm-hmm. all mixed yeah. together in the same world. Um, and I also now think about... Um, I remember coming down to your studio and seeing a painting and it was just of your partner or it was, uh, that was one of you on a bed and it was in the, in the process of being painted Uh and what's going on when you paint personal life. Hmm. Yeah, it is an interesting, um, that's an interesting question. I think certainly in the past, like you mentioned, it's sort of been like 15 years or something, um, But, yeah, certainly in the past, um, well, actually, there's a quote that um, it's actually from Carol Hanisch, and it was from 1969 and originally in relation to the the women's movement. Um, The quote is that the personal is political, and it's something that I've always carried with me and often used as a starting point coming from the personal place. So in the paintings that you would have seen with my partner, I was definitely thinking about gay politics. Um, But at the same time, I think those issues, especially when it comes to art, they've got a lot more resonance when they come from a personal place. And certainly now moving towards issues of race relations in the more recent work, I am still, um, certainly five years ago, they were much more coming from a, a, a personal place with my migrant background. I think more recently, and particularly with this new series, um, I think there's, I'm starting to m- detach a little bit from the personal Um but that's really just more as a new direction, I guess, that I'm exploring um, and basing it a lot more on what I'm reading and influences from the media and really what's going on in the world more than my own personal experience. And that's in the hope that maybe it might connect with people on some other kind of broader level as well. Yeah. I wonder about the migrant experience that you're talking about. I wonder if a lot of it maybe is lived through not yourself but your parents, just be in relationship to how you're talking about Melbourne feeling home and yes. and um, the idea that there would be this like <laughs> spiritual resonance on, on the place that you were born, but then, then there wasn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're spot on there. I think a lot of the um, associations that I have with uh, Malaysia and with China and with Southeast Asia are probably fed through stories that I've heard from them. And I guess that's also why 
the work is about how these associations with place form in the consciousness. Like you might have never have been there, like um, in the relationship that you might have with a place. Certainly I've never spent any time in Malaysia at all. I don't, I don't think I've actually been, no, I haven't actually been there as an adult. I don't think I've actually, I don't know if I've actually been there since I was two, since we moved actually. I don't think I've even visited. So yeah, for sure. Like that, um family relationship is really where my experience of that particular place is informed by yeah so, it's yeah, almost like a, a ancestral mythology of identity yeah absolutely that's the perfect way of putting it thanks mate that's what I, that's what <laughs> us dancers try and do you know get real good with words <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just reflect on that because of a duet that I made um, with another guy called The Blokes Project. And mm-hmm. that, and it was uh, mostly, I think, it was dealing with the how we had physicalized and taken on um, our father's identities as yep. um, working class white men in Australia. And then how that had moved into like how you should take up space. Um, Yes. And and how you should touch things and how you should approach people and things like that. And I didn't feel like it was my story, but I felt like that doesn't, but that I still felt like I needed to honor that it was the story that I had been handed. And then it was up to me to be like, okay, how does this, how does this operate in the world to, to, to the most value, positive value and benefit. I did see documentation of that work and I um, I really, funnily enough, I actually really connected with it, even though it's not my Tell me about it. You saw yourself in the Blokes Project, didn't you, mate? Well, I just, I just feel like it's a story that is very much part of the landscape of Australia. And it's something that even if it's not my lived experience, it's certainly an experience that I see a lot. And and I totally understand what you're saying about it maybe not being even your own lived experience. But I think this is the thing that people will sort of read that experience, sort of translate that experience onto you because it's what their perception of you is from knowing your uh, background. I guess it's how, why for me, uh, even people coming cold to my work will often say, because of my surname being Chin, that, oh, these look really Chinese, these paintings. Um, and they'll assume that the figures are Chinese. They'll assume a lot based on my ancestry. I think that's just natural for an audience to Im- sort of superimpose those kinds of um, uh their 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 explanation yeah and their their what they think of is your experience onto the onto the significance of the work do you feel it important to establish yourself as not mainland chinese or not even having grown up yeah it's interesting i um well, the answer is the short answer is no. Um, but I don't really necessarily. I kind of just sort of swim. I guess the whole um, 
point of my work is thinking about plurality in the way that we think about the um, a description of um, your makeup. And so I don't really ever really um, say that I'm this or I'm that, really. Um, Apart to say that I'm Australian. <laughs> uh, it's on my passport and you kind of need to put it down in all your grant applications. It's so. le- yeah, it's a legal thing. Um, mate, how does it go when you win awards and you suddenly, <laughs> it's like a payday. Basically, it's like one of the few ways to get paid as a painter, isn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like, it's, it's really big. And, and, and um, do you kind of think about it as in... Like, okay, if I win one award a year, even mm-hmm. if it's 25K, it's actually just that I'm getting all paid for the whole year in one day. Basically, it's like getting paid for the whole year in one day. Uh, yeah. It's funny because I think people who are not in the arts kind of see it as like winning the lottery or something like, oh, you're so lucky. You're going to change my house But actually, there's an expectation on me to win these prizes kind of regularly. So I've won a few now. <laughs> yeah, you need to be a winner, Kev. Well, it's kind of crazy. Like, and you kind of, after a while, you kind of almost expect it of yourself. It's like you say, it's kind of like, um, kind of like part of your, a way of generating income. So you kind of need those prizes. Um, but I tell you what, it feels great. It's not just, I mean, obviously the money is pretty bloody amazing, but the, um, just the kind of, like everyone, when you win something, everyone knows about it. Like you go to the open, you go to, cause you know, you go to openings all the time, exhibition openings and, the first thing people will say, be like, oh my gosh, didn't you just win that, that prize? Like rah, 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 rah. And it's, pretty awesome like it kind of um scrape your profile and it's kind of just you know what it's like in the arts where you can just feel like oh what am I doing what's like anyone paying any attention like you know what's going on so just when people kind of at least have some sense of what you're doing it's kind of nice is there I mean you tell me if this is not somewhere that we should go but I'm I am genuinely interested in how you and your partner operate economically over long yes. periods of time with the, in this sporadic income <laughs> yes well um i think it's a great question i'm happy to talk about it because i think actually i was in i did a podcast a new podcast called pro prac uh last month um that's about the professional practice of artists and i think one of the big things that i said was that um the being able to survive as an artist long-term really comes down to the financial. Like, it's kind of sad, but, I mean, how many people that were super talented that we went to art school with that have dropped off because they just couldn't survive financially? So, um, yeah, so how do I relate? So my partner um, has a normal job, thank God. (laughs) Um, He works in education. He's a former teacher who now works in education policy. Um, and definitely even though I, so I now have two commercial galleries that represent me, one in Melbourne and one in Sydney. Um, and that means that I'm pretty, um, sustainable financially in the way of sales. But having said that, no one really makes that much money no matter how much you're selling and how much you're selling for. 
So um, even though my income, and like you mentioned, I... Is that because of commissions or of fees or of what the market will handle or...? It's standard for a gallery to take between 40 and 50%. That's fairly standard industry-wide. So, and obviously the artist has to pay for half of the freight costs, half of the marketing costs. You know, there's a lot of, exp- oh, obviously I have to pay for all the production costs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but emotionally as well, right? You have to pay. <laughs> <laughs> the emotional cost is huge. No, um, but yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, it doesn't matter how much. Like, yeah, definitely people, artists who are, you know, a lot more established than I am still struggle financially. Um, I don't think it really matters um, how well. And, it, and the other thing is, even if you're selling quite well for currently, it doesn't mean that that, well, actually, it never lasts. It, people always kind of kind of have highs and lows. So, And are people um, buying your work to hang it? in their kitchen or are they buying it as an investment they think it will appreciate? I think the nature of, yeah, it's funny. I think um, in Australia, the nature of art buying is, I think the great thing is that I think people, collectors buy things because they like them. So that has carries a certain resonance with them. Um, I think actually the, art buyers in Australia are really interested in the development process and what the work is about. So I think that's great. I do think one frustrating thing about art buying in Australia is that there definitely is a focus on the decorative. I think that's uh, part of the wider culture that um, I don't think there's a great understanding of what the arts are. I mean, to me, the arts is about investigation. It's about trying to understand and um, unpack the world that we live in. But I think to people who are not necessarily a kind of rigorous part of an arts audience, um, I think a wider population can perceive the arts as being, yeah, like you're saying, to decorate a wall. And um, that aspect of things can be quite tricky to navigate. Yeah, it's the same with doing a show, like... um there's a Melbourne-based choreographer who I think is in Iceland at the moment called Tim Derbyshire, and he said to me how he would actually be much more excited to do a show between 2 and 3 a.m. because it seems to be this witching hour where the, the human is, like, more vulnerable and more open and, like, babies are born and death happens and things like that. Whereas you have this show at, like, 7.30 p.m., it means that everyone's finished their office job, gone out for dinner, and then come for a bit of light entertainment on the way home. Mm, that's true. Yeah, there's this horrible connection in Australia between the arts and entertainment. If you see it in the newspapers, where the newspaper section is called arts and entertainment, and you're like, they're completely separate things, so why are they being lumped together? Yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? Um, mate, I, I'm super keen to hear you think about, like, tell me how you think about um, when you're talking about uh, art, and the purpose of it to be interrogating things, mm-hmm. um, then I have an ongoing, uh, ongoing question around meritocracy and okay. what are the alternatives to meritocracy? And I know that you're dealing with these things in terms of 
like shining a light on the promise of the neoliberal system of that your progress is based on your meritocracy and the systemic differences that not everybody starts at the same place. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, oh my gosh, I could talk. I could I could talk to you for hours. So, so first start. Um, okay, so the show's titled Structural Equality, and it's play on the term structural inequality. Um, I think structural inequality has become a bit of a buzz term, um, and I'm hearing it a lot. And so for, the, for listeners who um, haven't heard the term before, uh, it refers to uh, discrepancies between uh, members of society that are, you know, we kind of assume that they are at an individual level, i.e. this person's not as smart as that person or maybe not as skilled, but really the problem comes the problems are rooted in systemic issues at an institutional level. Um, so, and we see that, I think it's been much, much better documented lately um, with these inequities between gender, between race, between um, sexuality, um, between, re- uh, pe- you know, location, like people who live in regional areas versus urban areas. Um, it's been much better documented. I mean, so much. How does how does the individual yeah. have a relationship with the institution in that situation? Because I I want to still feel empowered that my life is up to me, so that I feel this this sense that I can do something about this, my standard of life. Um, but then, of course, like you say that the same input from individuals doesn't get the same outcome. And so there's differences there. But so how does, like, I'm interested to hear you talk about how the individual should operate in the world of mm, compromised meritocracy. Yeah. Hmm. That's a great question. Um, I think, um, for a start, I think um, it's it's the first thing is to not hit your head up against the wall. Um, and I think what is happening, I think what we're seeing at the moment is a kind of um, a groundswell where community groups are working together to try to instigate institutional change. And I see that in the arts. I see that in um, this kind of shaming of galleries that really only have um, programs that don't reflect diversity. Um, I think as, you know, and that's individuals coming together to try to tackle the issues at this sort of, at, at a broader level. Um, I think at the same time, as an individual, you need to kind of stay in your own lane and um, just continue, you know, head down, butt up. Um, And that has to continue at the same time because, you know, you need to have uh, the work to show for yourself, uh, you know, and, and, and you have to kind of hope that the opportunity, you know, by affecting change both at that individual and at that institutional level, that at some point, uh, things will coalesce and you will actually have opportunities and when they arise, then you need to be ready to take them. Yeah. Do you position yourself, uh, like even even in your own internal dialogue and identity, as a minority? And is oh, that yeah. always the case? Yeah. Are you always 
in every context in like working in a gallery in London and in like being represented in Melbourne and like the neighborhood that you live in and when you visit Indonesia like are you always a minority or are there sometimes when you're in the majority oh no I'm always in the minority <laughs> always in fact it's funny it's more and I think the further I go the more responsibility I seem to be given as an advocate for minority groups I mean, I was on the panel, I've been on the panel for Creative Victoria twice now, so that's the state funding body um, for visual arts, and I'm definitely there to, um, as an advocate for projects that are, yeah, that represent really all different forms of diversity. So, um, and that question of like, okay, so being your position in a minority group, is it something that gets sort of turned on and off? I don't think it ever does. I think it's really part of, uh, well, for me anyway, I um, I guess, uh, and I, I have to say it's not something that I ever really thought about when I was starting out, um, but I guess I'm feeling the responsibility more and more now as, there are there just not that many people of colour in the arts community. So I kind of, you know, if I, I, it's not really necessarily a position that I particularly ask to be in or want to be in, but it's just that, well, if not me, then who? Yeah. And what, how does intersectional minority go within that? Like, can you just rock up as an immigrant or are you also rocking up as a... Uh, a male immigrant or as a homosexual male immigrant or as a homosexual male immigrant of color or like which, which ones do you feel more and less authority to speak on behalf of and advocate on behalf of? And are you interested in all of these things? And do you think it gets in the way of people looking at your work? Like you were saying before that people assume China because of the last name Chin when they look at your pieces, but actually they're, a collage of a no, no place? Yeah, that's a terrific question. I think um, I think that I've become more comfortable in kind of advocating across uh, all kinds of diversity groups, including the ones that I'm not a member of. Um, definitely, though, in the room, <laughs> it's quite funny, in a room, in a panel situation, um, if there's something that involves cowed, a culturally and linguistically diverse aspect, the eyes turn to me. <laughs> oh, but you um, were saying that, like, you're not really, like, you're not, you're not linguistically diverse. And I'm so not. then, are you, and, so the, and then we were talking about how, like, a lot of your cultural diversity is actually just the product of being a child of immigrants rather than having the lived experience in another culture. Yeah, that's spot on. So it is, it's really interesting. And so that's why I think it's what I was saying about it's what often people will project onto you as being the experience and the knowledge that they would expect you to have. But having said that, I probably am the best qualified person in relatively speaking compared to uh-huh, anyone else uh-huh. in the room. Imagine if they gave you like a badge or a vest or something. They're like, oh yeah, this is our CALD representative. <laughs> and and it was that explicit. It's funny. I actually don't really have a problem with it in the sense that I'm just glad that, that there is someone speaking up on behalf of, you know, different groups. And, and I actually do feel very comfortable. Like I, 
I often um, advocate for um, women's projects as well, even though obviously I'm not a woman. Um, <laughs> but I, and I, I'm actually very conscious of it, even like far part of the reason why I show with the two galleries that I do. So, I show, so this is No Fantasy in Melbourne and Martin Brown in Sydney is because I think they have an excellent track record of supporting Indigenous artists. They support, they have a good mix of female and male artists, which is very rare actually um, in within the commercial gallery context those galleries make a financial compromise or sacrifice by doing that yeah that's a that's another great question i think that um certainly because collectors because and this is what we're talking about with structural inequality unfortunately the way things are currently uh, almost 100% of art buyers are, well, not 100%, but okay. So a lot a lot of art buyers, um, and particularly the very powerful and very big buyers, are very often straight white men. And I think it's just natural. And actually, um, this is explained really well. Is that just in- because that's where um, the money is? Well, exactly, because it's it's symptomatic of broader societal structures where these are the people who are in higher paid jobs. Um, so, unfortunately, and, and the natural human instinct is that you're going to be drawn to art that relates to your lived experience. So you're probably going to be drawn to artists who are also straight white men. And we see that a lot with, who, is, who are Australia's Venice Biennale representatives. We've seen that over the years. We see that a lot in who dominates institutional exhibitions and who are highly represented in institutional collections. So um, definitely I do think that um, it is probably is harder for galleries um, to represent diversity. And so I think, but honestly, if they, if that doesn't happen, then the change can never, should never happen. And so we have to support um, the galleries that are willing to make that kind of gutsy move and to support the artists who are also working in that field to try to level the playing field a little. And then we need some rich people who are diverse in other cultural or linguistic aspects. Yeah, we do. So that when they come in and see work that is not white male Australian, they associate with it because that's also another aspect, like I guess with the apartment buying spree in Sydney, like if you have foreign investors who are buying and if people buy art based on seeing themselves within the art, then that's almost like the market forces equivalent. But I wonder... Sorry, you go. There you go. Uh, I just... Within any discussion of diversity, I I wonder about um, financial diversity as well. And Mm -hmm. I use the word financial instead of class because I think it's... Class is so complex, but financial diversity is quite easy to pin down. It's like, what is your relationship to wealth? And... Mm -hmm. And is it serving you or are you a slave to it, basically, right. in, in the amount of options that you have in your life? And it's interesting mm-hmm. that um, straight white dudes have the amount of money that they can direct 
who can continue surviving as an artist just by the sheer force of who gets bored. Um, Mm -hmm. But simultaneously, straight white dudes in Australia, there's also straight white dudes in Australia who are super poor and emotionally illiterate and end up committing suicide with like a shotgun out in the paddock who are not directing art. And so like, to me, there's also uh, a financial diversity that maybe we haven't started thinking about or addressing. And maybe that's like a future thing that we look at in that, like how does somebody come in and buy artwork, not Mm -hmm. leveraging their, financial power but Mm -hmm. buying it with money that is like given to them as a government grant to say okay the only thing you can do with this 10 grand is go and buy a piece of art and then they get to Mm -hmm. exercise their what you were talking about their um natural tendency to to uh support art that they see themselves within and then (laughs) instead of this like art that speaks to people who live in the world in a way that has resulted in them being wealthy, then Mm -hmm. art that is supported is some like financially supported is like somehow art that is, that's speaking to people who are disenfranchised. Ah, I think um, that's a really interesting model. I think um, absolutely there's issues of access um, with the arts. Um, Certainly. I mean, I'm speaking from experience. Like I, and, okay, we, we, we're talking about it with regards to purely financial access. I certainly came from, a, for lack of a better term, a really povo family. So I never had any exposure to the arts growing up. So I had to find it for myself as an adult. So, and I think, okay, speaking now beyond just financial um uh, disparities, I think that is highly connected to being a person of colour. I think there are real... Um, Do you think... Hang yeah, on, yeah. I just want to uh, like put a little challenge in there because I think it'll make for a more interesting conversation. Do you think that the that it's directly related to the colour or directly related to immigration? Like, are you behind the eight ball instantly by moving to a new country? And would a Polish person moving to Australia be, like, not as far behind maybe as a person of colour, but similarly they don't have intergenerational wealth and knowledge on how to navigate the systems of a new nation? I think that's an excellent point, and I do think that, for me, it's multi-fold. I think that, yes, I think it's sort of... um, I think that both being a migrant and being a person of color are both significant. Yeah. yeah. So I, <laughs> it's true. it's all a big deal, isn't it? Well, um, kind of. And I guess that's what you're talking about with intersectionality, which is kind of another big word at the moment that, um, that there are layers that, you know, when it comes to discrepancies between members of society, there are different layers of that. And, um, and you can't really separate, out all the time what aspects is uh attributed to what so and do you um, have a question about being it seems like a lot of the places that you uh, have lived and worked are former british colonies and (laughs) (laughs) and so on one hand it seems like maybe that's where the infrastructure for european art to happen is 
yeah. um, and uh, that that you can you know go go and navigate. And on the other hand, it makes sense that there may be some kind of uniformity across your experience of interacting with uh, an embedded white hetero male power structure that mm-hmm. is uh, like that, of course, was imported um, from Britain in the first place. And I wonder, um, yeah, I wonder about that. I wonder if, like, I wonder about nationalism within that context and, like, a non-white nationalism and if you've spent, how how you feel if you've spent any time in countries that are not former British colonies and how it feels there. Unfortunately, Matt, the world we live in, uh, white colonisation is Pretty ubiquitous. <laughs> it's true. I mean, especially um, if you count the Spanish as white as well, I guess. Right, exactly. It's kind of, And the Dutch. I mean, it's kind of like, well, where can else can you go? So Japan, I guess. Oh, true. Is, Strong is not, power. Uh, yeah, it doesn't have that same history. But, um, yeah, I, I mean... That's, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? That's why I think um, when we're talking about these issues and why we, you know, people talk about, you know, is it an Australian issue? I think they're really global issues because this is, we're talking about issues that kind of, it doesn't kind of, regardless of which individual country you're from, these structures of power exist, you know, across the board. Uh, in, and in Malaysia, Malaysia, where I was born, is it was is a British colony. Um, a lot of parts of Southeast Asia are at least former British colonies, if not currently. So um, that idea of you know how do you perceive things outside of that text? It's kind of well, does that even exist? Um, so really tricky kind of. Um, yeah, the, those kinds of power relations are really tricky and you don't want to get stuck in this sort of um, idea that like, okay, well, the, um, you know, that kind of central periphery model where it's like, okay, um, the Western model is what we're considering to be central and then, you know, it's, it's but then at the same time, because, you know, that's problematic, but then at the same time it's kind of like, well, it's kind of the reality of the world we're living in, like, to think of it in that way. I don't know if it's – so mm, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely murky territory. Isn't it? And then you go and make some paintings, right? Yeah. Like, this is what we do. We get so flooded with, I uh, guess, things that are unresolved – verbally mm-hmm. and then we go and we get, we get to work as artists yeah and then what is that for you like do you apart from like the 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 nuts and bolts of like taking photos and then cutting them into collages and then painting them like what mm-hmm. is the decision making process in all of those steps well, I think that's the great thing about exploring these themes artistically is that, I mean, the show is called Structural Equality because it's about imagining a way that things can actually be better. So um, the, the, there's a, a running motif through the paintings of this theme of an imperfect reflection um, where 
things are, there's this inversion of the way things might be and also the way you kind of wish things could be. So um, I think that's what, uh, that's why I make the paintings really. It's about trying to envisage, you know, trying to create and invite people into a different um, kind of like a different dimension, really, as to where things could be reflected a bit more perfectly, actually, and where you can kind of, you know, where think where nationalistic borderlines aren't so apparent, where things and you know you can use paintwork to kind of blur those boundaries and um, and use paint as a form to kind of uh, rethink those kind of hard lines that separate. Um, you know, cultural differences. Do you, what do you think about, uh, do you ever think about your work as a kind of sci-fi? Wow. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> because that's the, like the, 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 the greatest, um, possibility of what sci-fi can do is imagine alternate social structures and then play them out in this fictional world so that, we can be like, huh, I guess that might work. Or, huh, I guess that is not what's going on in our real world. And now I need to think about what's going on in our real world. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, I never thought of it in those terms. I guess sci-fi though often tend to be, um, what's that word? Mystope, uh, dystopian somehow. <laughs> Don't that and end up being, whereas I think the, uh, my paintings are a little more I- idyllic, probably a bit more utopian, um so yeah i think that's an interesting uh thought i've never um thought of them in that in those terms before it's almost yeah because it's almost like a if if general sci-fi is dystopic your sci-fi would be your version of sci-fi would be like a playful mash of dreams yeah, definitely. And definitely people have talked about the work before with regards to dreams. And um, and I absolutely, I think that, I mean, it, it kind of is a big part of the uh, the migrant experience is this idea of dreaming of a better life and trying to make a better life for yourself. So, um, and it's very much a lot in terms of what you are asking about what, you know, how do you choose the imagery that you use where, you know, the decision-making process, I think a lot of it, is I mean because I I mean I I mean so you know this this series is based on a residency uh, in the US that I did at Teton Art Lab um, in Jackson and in the month that I was there I shot over ten thousand photos so this question of which images then actually finally make it into a painting it's large it's part of it is about what um, what do you dream what do you aspire to what do you dream of what uh, so, you know, some of the kind of structures, this, this, this series has had a, has a high focus on structures, how man-made structures feed into structures naturally forming from the natural environment. And so a lot of the structures I've been drawn to are ones where they're these kind of idyllic houses, uh, American suburban houses that you see through TV, that you kind of, kind of infiltrate your consciousness through mass media, that you kind of dream about like that oh gee I wish I lived there I kind of that's the kind of life that I wish I had so I think that kind of um this idea of the of of the dream or this or the fantasy or this uh um definitely feeds into feeds into the work 
I mean, it seems important that these images are beautiful in the way that they're visually seductive and reassuring, even though they're disjointed, they're cohesive in their beauty. Yeah, totally. And for me, it's uh, it's actually a deliberate strategy. Ooh, talk I- to me about strategy. Are you seducing the viewer? <laughs> Is this like a flirtation with... Seduction is my middle name. <laughs> Kevin Seduction Chin. Imagine <laughs> if that was your gallery alias. People well, are, oh, I think yes, if I you're really talking about them. these themes and if you're talking to people about issues of white privilege, well, it's kind of, you yeah, don't want people, it's, it's hard not to be, you know, you're trying not to be people people offside. So you kind of need to have strategies to lure people in and to, uh, and to get people. I mean, the work is very subtle. So I should say that even though we're talking about these really big themes, um, you know, the references are quite subtle. And so it relies on people being drawn in and then asking, why is there this guy, like, why are these people of colour on a, uh, on this kind of temporary infrastructure, you know, this kind of construction site? Like, why is, why, why is that in this picture? Why, I mean, it's slightly not what you'd expect from a really, kind of idyllic landscape. So why are they there? What What is this saying about, and what is this relationship, this building with the waterfall that they're next to? Like, what is this connection? So I definitely um, rely on the, um, yeah, the seduction of the, of the, of, of what is quite naturally, um, what na- what's natural to painting is this idea of the aesthetic and, and beauty. So, um, Absolutely, it's a conscious decision and uh, something that I um, that I kind of work towards, as, you know, as part of the craft of painting. What What's your thoughts about when you're in um, when you're viewing work sites in the West and they're almost entirely male uh, labor force, and mm. depending on where you are, that labor force has varying ratio of colored and non-color like well i guess there's just a gamut of color right so but either people are like they have different back um ethnic backgrounds on the yeah. on that wave of labor force on a work site but predominantly men okay when i i wonder if you've like been across work sites where there's women there as well in a large percentage that are laboring I, um, so in this series, I've been very conscious to include, cause there, yeah, there are people working on these built structures. So I have included some women in, um, in these paintings. Have I actually seen this for myself in real life? I thought about no. it because I noticed it for the first time when I was in Philippines and when I was in Thailand is that there would be sometimes up to half of the people on a build, uh, were women. And I'd never uh, yeah. seen that in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Um, but it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I, um, I haven't seen that myself, to be honest. Um, and certainly, I mean, this series is, and the places that, um, that I've been, I mean, a lot, this series is largely based on the time in America. So certainly not in America are you ever going to see that. Okay. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Mm. 
Mate, I want to I wanna just briefly speak about when you do work that's not to hang on a wall, like when okay. you write something and then it gets published and then people are reading your words. I want to talk about that. And then I also want to talk about the book that you released. And um, I, I don't mind which one you want to talk about first. Maybe like the process of writing something for publication. Wow. Okay. Um, that's unexpected. <laughs> so, okay. So I should explain. So I wrote, so my time, when I moved to Japan, I wrote a book called Original Yellow, which was published uh, then in 2015 by M33 as an ebook. Um, and that was actually my first hand at writing was actually doing my honours thesis in 2012. And I wrote that thesis about gay marriage actually so and that was very much from a personal perspective so this this book called original yellow that i wrote while in japan was again politicized but uh again coming from a very personal place and it was very much about my experience in japan where for the first time everyone looked like me and that was this weird sort of um cultural identification weirdness going on and i related it back to my experience growing up in a very white suburb in Australia where I always felt like an outsider. And then in Japan, everyone looked like me, but then I couldn't speak the language, so I actually was an outsider. It's <laughs> <laughs> so, totally weird. So it was this weird kind of displacement going on. So that's that experience because of the whole kind of kind of head fuck that that was, um, was why I wanted to write that book. Um, and, 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 you know, we're calling it a book, but it's quite short. So it's more like a memoirs or something like um but but definitely unpacking it and relating it to the Australian experience and it and it's it's actually a photo book so it's uh it's a lot it's largely image based as much as it is writing um but yeah I think it's it was an interesting experience I haven't done anything like that since um I have been I have found that I've been doing a lot more talking though lately which is I guess very similar to writing in that you know, art, you kind of rely on for it to speak on for itself a lot of the time. Um, but I seem to be finding myself asked to be, to speak more for, for different things. And I, I, I yeah, I, it's, it's curious. I, I'm not sure just yet, because it's quite new to me, how um, integrated the, the pain, the, you know, the work is versus what's coming out of my mouth. And what and what and what I'm writing about. I hope that there's that they congeal at some point. It's interesting. I think now um, the the way that the art context is that we're living in. I think it's a little different now. I think things have changed a little bit in that. You know, art is now more. Uh, combined with the artist talk. Like a lot of the shows that I do, that often has a public program component where there's artist talks, um, panel discussions, and they seem to be a lot more integral with the actual work itself. I think that's, I think the way that arts funding works is that it's often tied to an educational component. And as a result, they ask artists to, you know, speak to school groups or to a general public or whatever it might be, but there's an, some kind of educational component to it. And I think as part of that, um, there's an opportunity to um, speak to themes in the work that may be more subtle and that may not be, that may get lost to a broader audience, actually. 
So, and I think that's quite a shift. I think that's kind of a new thing, really. Yeah, and it seems that what you do really well is mm, basically have a chat with people about the work rather than them feeling like they were dumb to not get it in the first place and now you're here to educate them. How do you do that? (laughs) I think that's an excellent question. I think that um, for a start, I think the arts audience, um, I think in Australia anyway, they're very humble and they often want to know more about the work. Like I don't, I've never really, I mean, I speak, I do speak to a lot of people who come to see different shows and um, my experience is that people always want to know more about the work and people are never really want to enforce their own opinions of what artwork is or says or does. So I think people are generally very responsive and respectful. Um, And so I think that helps a lot that people actively actually want to know more about the work so that you don't really have to try to get anyone to get anything that they don't want to. What's... Mate, what's your biggest hope for all of the effort of doing the thinking and then doing the work and then doing the sharing? And then what do you hope that what that all of this might do? I think um, my goal is really just to be part of a broader conversation about issues that really um, are important. And I think ultimately it's about enacting change. Um, and um, and that, that probably is probably my biggest hope that, you know, and, and that's, you know, across both in terms of the subject matter of the work um, but also, and also in terms of the structure, the way that the art systems are structured as well. Um, yeah, it's about wanting things to just be better. Yes. <laughs> Sing it. <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. And, and, and about what you, maybe I would go back to what you said before about dreaming a better alternative into possibility. I think that's where the power of the arts lies is that, you know, that's what we're here for is we are the visionaries. We're the ones that, and that's, that's our job is to imagine a better future for on behalf of, you know, everyone really. Yeah. What a, what a, a privilege and also a stress. <laughs> an honour. Definitely an honour. Wow. Um, I, I Usually I like to also finish up by just asking if there's an epiphany that you like had one day that you wrote down that you keep in your workspace or if there's like something like a motto or a, a, a philosophy or approach that you try and hold on to in your more intense working stressful periods or when things become frustrating or when you can't see through the process, if there's just like a little bit of wisdom that you've found somewhere along the way. Well, I can tell you that uh, the thing that I'll share with you is probably what is the starting point of this new series actually was um, a book I read, a fantastic book by an American author named Crystal Fleming called How to Be Less Stupid About Race. And um, I think, I mean, honestly, I think this book should be a textbook for Australian schools. Um, I think everyone should read it. I think um, but the, the, the takeaway from the book was what we were talking about earlier, that um, that 
issues around discrepancies between society are, are structural inequalities rather than individual than, than rather than the, happening at an individual level. And I think that um, I kind of I feel a little reassured by that in a strange way um, that it's kind of like what you were talking about with um, you know, as an individual, what do you do amidst, you know, amidst in this in this world? Like, how do you kind of keep yourself sane? And this sense that, like, you know, together we're working towards a kind of a bigger goal. Um, we're working towards making change at a at a broader level. So I think that idea ideas around um, structural equality. Uh, you know, at the moment, that's the kind of theme that I'm that I'm holding on to. Nice one, mate. Thank you very much for your time and for your thinking and for the openness. That was a great conversation, Matt. You ask really amazing questions. <laughs> so, uh, that's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fantastic to be able to talk openly about these about these themes and these issues. Yeah, well, it's a big deal. Ah, absolutely. And I don't think it gets discussed enough in Australia, honestly. I think we could do more, so... We can, we can do more.